Hi, James. Ben, how are you? Um, I'm okay. Okay. Yeah, I feel, feel a little tired. Mm. I, I I spent I spent hours in Excel yesterday for not, which is never a good feeling. Yeah, uh, it's kind of nice to escape to Excel for a while, but when it's all for not, then it then it feels unfortunate. The 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 truth in numbers, huh? Uh, something like that. I actually think there's potentially something there, but I have to figure out how to get it done. Um, but I want to quick thank uh, Zendesk, our our sponsor. Uh, make software for better customer service. Its platform is designed to bring organizations and their customers closer together and is used by more than 60,000 organizations in 150 countries. Customer relationships are built on trust and communication, which requires making customer service a core part of our product experiences, not an afterthought. Make your customer service seem like magic by building it directly into your apps, websites, and products with Zendesk Embeddables. You can find out more at zendesk.com slash embeddables. And since it's about trust and communication, I'm glad our sponsor is Zendesk and not say like Volkswagen. Or yeah, something like I that. know. I, I, um, yeah, I, <laughs> V-dub. I'm, I, I, no, I want to say good things about Zendesk. They're amazing. And then Volkswagen. I'm, I wonder if this is going to end up going down as something that is going to put the nail, one of the final nails in the coffin of the combustion engine. This is crazy what they've done. It's well. It's interesting. I think there's actually uh, a few different angles. I mean, I think what gets people up in arms is, and this is, I think, an interesting point, is the clearly clear deliberateness of their actions. Like this, this had to be planned out, you know, step by step. It had to be researched, had to be put in, it had to be turned on. Like people had to actively make decisions to do this. Um, and it's bad. Make make no mistake. I mean, uh, you know, lots of those like a million extra tons of, of pollution. Uh, and I, I want to make a joke on Twitter, but I couldn't figure out how to, how to quite word it that, you know, the executive or the CEO got a 32 million euro, you know, golden parachute and uh, basically got paid 32 euros per pound of pollution or something like that. I, I, um, oh, I mean, the, it, it was, and I saw some crazy statistic that it, it had the effect of adding like an extra, um, like I, Great Britain, basically. Yeah, some incredible number of cars on the road, uh, and yeah, I, it's just it's nuts. It's this is it's nuts. Well, the thing though that's interesting is, um, again, I mean, pollution is is um, is a bad thing. I don't we're 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 definitely. I think both of us uh, believe that we've talked about it. Um, you know, we're doing harm uh, both in the actually this this sort of pollution that that was allowed nitrous is it nitrous oxide nitrogen oxide. Uh-huh. It's more, that's more like a more local type pollution, like smog and stuff like that, as opposed to uh, carbon dioxide, which is more, it, it causes less of a problem locally and causes more of a problem, you know, globally um, for with global warming, things like that. Um, but what's interesting is there is widespread outrage about this and certainly rightly so. Um, it does seem, um, I just think about the, the GM thing um, a couple of years ago where basically uh, people were dying because there was a problem with their cars uh, and GM dilly dallied on doing a recall and fixing it or whatever for a very long time. And, and yes, people were outraged, but it felt like it wasn't anything to this scale. And even though people were actually dying, like directly because they didn't do this. And it's almost like, because in that case it was more of a sin of omission yeah, where totally. they weren't, they weren't like actively doing something, but does that make it any, any worse? The outcomes were arguably worse. 
I, I mean, I, I think deliberately scheming to s- circumvent these pollution laws uh, is a much worse crime than, oh my gosh, this is, uh, well. But that's but, but they knew, yeah. they had evidence. They yeah. had evidence and they chose not to act on it. And it, it, it's interesting. Yeah, it's a fair you, point. I mean, it's it's just, this speaks to like how dysfunctional organizations can be. I, I, I still prefer the GM kind of dysfunction where, no one's brave enough to make a decision because, I mean, even though it's the right thing, everyone's... So you, so you prefer people dying? Well, I, I mean, <laughs> yeah, it's a, that's, a, that's a fair and pointed question. I, I still prefer the, the organizational model of we, we're not brave enough to make the right decision as opposed to this feels like a, an almost evil act of we're going to conspire to... Um, circumvent these laws that are designed to protect the planet. Um, it, it, it's it's like there's there's just it feels like a greater degree of malice and scheming and coordination, and it's just not a good look. It's interesting though. I mean, it gets to the point of how, uh, and I think actually this is a, a point that organizations struggle with is we and and I, my my instinct is to feel the same as you, and I think everyone else is as is clearly clearly seen just in the, in the reaction. Um, we tend to value, uh, intention and like, uh, like good intentions or, or bad intentions, uh, more oftentimes than we do outcomes. Cause if you step back, uh, Volkswagen made the various environments that its cars operate more unpleasant to live in and, and to be in and, and caused, you know, uh, pollution problems uh gm killed people <laughs> and but if you ask almost anyone including in, including you uh and i surprised you with the question to be fair <laughs> uh it, your immediate assumption is that the volkswagen actions were worse because they were deliberate i mean and this is the distinction between manslaughter and 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 murder right like i i do think intent matters and it's, it's one thing at the level of an individual, but having worked in a number of organizations to pull off something like this just must have required far and wide coordination. Like it's not an easy thing to do in the same way, uh, like the, the default for organizations is the status quo, is, is to just keep going, doing what, the, what they're doing. It actually takes energy to arrest that and make a decision and have everyone inside an organization fall into line. And again, it's, it's obviously not great that GM's immediate reaction wasn't for the safety of their customers, but it's kind of understandable. It's like these big bureaucratic organizations and they just keep bumbling along until the pressure gets turned up too high, as opposed to the amount of energy and effort that must have gone in and the conversations that just must have happened inside a Volkswagen where it's, it's okay, you know, this pollution thing isn't a problem. We'll just We'll, we'll, we'll get some guys to write the code such that when the car's doing the test, it turns it down. But everyone else, uh, like when they're not doing the test, we'll, we'll just maximize performance and don't worry about the pollution. And they've just left themselves exposed on so many fronts to regulators, like from a reputational point of view, but customers as well, who are now going to get to take their car back in and have the performance that they thought they were getting dialed back. It's just so stupid. No, for sure, and 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 to be clear, um, I'm not at all saying that what they did was good or bad, and, and it was stupid, and they're getting appropriately punished. And actually, that's another interesting question: is 
Um, it's certainly one could certainly argue the market is doing a better job of punishing them than a government ever could. Mm. Um, <laughs> but I, 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 to go back to that organization point mm. and, and about how we humans uh, tend to focus on intent as opposed to mm. outcome and how actually to what extent does that does that lead to organizational dysfunction? You know, mm. we, we talk about the Amazon thing and like, you know, how you can over or appropriately, depending on your point of view, value how someone feels or how you feel, why someone is saying something. And that can impact the actual outcome or, or, or thing that's presented. There's, there's a, a job, Steve Jobs story um, uh, about, you know, the, what's the difference between a vice president and a janitor mm. <laughs> and where, where if the janitor, you know, he sees the garbage isn't being emptied. He goes to the janitor and the janitor's like, Oh, the, the, the lock got changed. I haven't gotten a new key. It's like it's annoying, but it's like whatever. Like, the, uh, what's he? What's the janitor gonna do about it? Like, he doesn't really, he doesn't have any control over the situation. Uh, but if you're a VP, you don't get to make excuses. It doesn't matter if the lock got changed on you or if the factory in China had a problem or whatever. Like, it doesn't matter. All that matters is whether the outcome that you were responsible got finished or not, and your good intentions and your best made plans doesn't matter. All that matters is the black and white outcome. And um, it, is that a good way to manage that? Is that a, a, a realistic? I don't know, but I do know that that runs counter to our natural instinct and way to think about things. Because if we thought that way naturally, we would hold GM just as or probably more responsible and culpable than Volkswagen because the outcome that they were responsible was worse. Yeah, it's a really good point. Uh it's a fantastic story, and just thinking about it, uh, I, so so I, it's it's almost easier for me to think about this at a, at a personal level before thinking about it from an organizational and a societal level. You want to be careful, uh, like that Steve Jobs thing around the holding the vice president accountable. You want to be careful of doing that because, yeah, it's one thing to say you don't have any excuses. But on the other hand, if if everyone's held a, I, to be successful, you want people to take risks, and sometimes the risks will work out and turn into fantastic things, and sometimes sometimes there'll be complete failures. And the problem is if you hold people uh, accountable for outcomes alone inside organizations in the way that you describe, you need to be very careful because what you can inadvertently do is encourage people to operate in a safe zone. Probably the answer to the organization question about how you want to stop people from taking risk is that means you also have to hold sins of omission to the same standard as sins of commission, mm. which means you're held responsible for not achieving just as much as you're held responsible for, for failing. Mm. And mm. Uh, that's a really that's a really good way of articulating it. Well, I just think in general, this is the part that that humans we humans struggle with it is this commission versus omission point and and that's what it comes up in all kinds of things like people are so risk averse right and people don't don't appreciate that risk has two components it has a downside component and it has an upside component and and they they get so focused on the downside that they make decisions or do things that have a very limited downside but they're by definition limiting you know, the potential on the other end. And it takes a certain, it certainly takes a, a sort of cultural mindset and a very 
uh, not explicit. What's the word? Um, uh, like of where you're making conscious. a choice. Yeah. Conscious, um, conscious, explicit sort of thinking, um, discipline thinking to make sure you're consistently valuing the upside just as much as you are the downside and making decisions appropriately. Like I, I, I really I still haven't thought of the right word. Yeah, well, I, I tried. I might, I'm going to have to work on my cross. It's going to come. It's going to come. Skills. If I suddenly burst in with the word uh, okay. in the middle of your, your you talking, you have yep. to forgive me. No, uh, <laughs> deal. Um, I, I really love that. Deliberate, deliberate, uh, a very deliberate sort of uh, th- thought process. Apology accepted. <laughs> no, but I, I really love that that way of it's it's. People think of it as a spectrum and what you've just described of it, described it as like how you think about um, how you think about um, activities or, or failing to do something uh, versus trying to do something and not succeeding at it. Like the, the, it's not a spectrum. It's almost like two independent scales and you need to treat them differently as a result. I, I really love that way of thinking about it. Yeah, so there was this. Uh, I don't know, for some reason, this makes me think of this article that I um, that I tweeted uh, a couple weeks ago. Was, if you have savings in your twenties, you're doing something wrong. <laughs> and it was interesting. I, was, I I tweeted it approvingly, like mm. this is totally my philosophy. And uh, people, some people definitely did not like that. Uh, and I got you know the usual, uh, you know, it's reckless. Uh, I got the that's fine for Ben. Oh wow! Um, there you I go. got I got the uh, I got the. <laughs> I you love don't how under- often that line comes out. It's hilarious. I, I got the, of course, you don't understand compounding interest. And I got like 47 men explaining to me how, how it works. Um, how does uh, compounding interest work, Ben? <laughs> well, James, it turns out. <laughs> like, it's inter- I mean, I, 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 I know how compounding interest works. Like, if, if money you save when you're 25 is worth more than money you save when you're 35, all things being equal, because you have 10 more years for to earn interest, not just on your money, but also on the interest on your money. Um, interest on interest is a great way to make money. Yes, I get that. Or gain on gain or however you want to phrase it. Um, <laughs> you're probably not making much interest. In but, days, I mean, couldn't you make the exact same argument about experiences in your 20s being more valuable than experiences in your 30s? Like you're it, learning things about yourself and that could change your whole trajectory. And if you do it earlier, you could find out something super valuable that takes you in a new direction, right? That's, well, I think we just wrapped up this segment. That's, exa- it. that's exactly it. All like, right. Sorry. I need to play devil's advocate. No, that was perfect. I loved, uh, no, I loved exactly how you, how you framed it. Um, I actually, I, I hadn't thought of it in precisely those terms, but yeah, I mean, like the, the thing with money is because I can put it in a spreadsheet, speaking of Excel, and I can actually look at that compounding interest. Uh, it's very easy to see the, the pros and the cons. Um, you know, for the money question specifically, my response has always been, well, let me calculate if I save some minuscule amount in the twenties that, that, I, that, that, that I made, um, and I'd make it a 35, how much should I have 35? How would I just put that exact same amount in when I'm 35? And guess what? I've totally caught up. Like there's not, it's not like money magically put in when you're in your twenties is, is worth more than the exact same amount of money in your thirties. Like mm. you're by that point, you're in the same boat. Um, but no, but it's exactly it. Like what about, what about the experience part? And, uh, it's, I mean, for, again, you can, you can point to me and say, oh, that's fine for Ben. You, you get us sit in your pajamas and write a blog. Um, but you know, I'm again, we're on the Steve Jobs theme, I guess, but I'm reminded of Steve Jobs thing in the, in the, in the Stanford speech where he says, you look, it's only when you look back and you see 
the path you've taken that the dots, you know, you connect the dots, you can, you can see what makes sense. And when I was in my twenties, uh, of course there was the obvious stuff where, you know, I was living abroad and got interesting experiences. Mm -hmm. Um, I was teaching kindergartners. Like I, I mean, I was your classic English teacher, um, totally worthless to the world for the most part. Oh, stop um, it. there's value in that. Well, yeah, <laughs> for the first couple of years. Uh, um, but uh, like for me, like I was super cocky. I was really annoying. I thought I knew everything. Um, and I know this comes as a revelation of people following me on Twitter <laughs> um, or listen to this podcast. I'm just biting my tongue right now. But no, if you think I'm insufferable now, I mean, imagine, <laughs> imagine how insufferable I was. Uh, I was 10 years ago. Like there's, there's no, like, there's no way I could handle. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm a, a very small fish in a very big pond on the internet, but even to what, whatever success or notoriety that I have, there's no way I could have handled that when mm -hmm. I was in my twenties. Not, not in the slightest. I mean, it, <laughs> I delete enough tweets as it is wanting to get into it with people on Twitter. And I talked about, I, I kind of mocked the mansplaining thing. That was me times 40 gazillion. Um, and, and how much, how much is that worth? And it, this gets to another organizational thing. The things that you can't put a dollar figure on just don't get valued. And, and you, and I think that's a great example from life, but it's a great example that we struggle with in general. Things that can't be measured don't get valued. I think that point is totally, totally right. I mean, the, 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 you sent me the article last week and I enjoyed reading it. And uh, I I think there's definitely some truth to it. I, I think uh, I think in her... It was, it was, it was a little clickbaity. Well, it wasn't just clickbaity. It did feel a little bit like she'd written it trying to justify herself as opposed to written it in a search for the truth. And that frustrated me a little bit. I think your point, um, the point you just made about the things that you can put a dollar figure to... Uh, I think that's so, it sounds so, it sounds so obvious and it's almost cliched, but the number of people who fall into the trap of trying to make decisions based on things that can be quantified, the number of people I talk to about this, it blows my mind. And you can tell, I, I feel like you can tell very quickly whether people are making decisions for the right reasons around their career where when they talk about things that can't be quantified rather than talking about things that can. So if they're talking about how prestigious the firm is, how much money they're making, all these things, they're making decisions for the wrong reasons. If they're talking about how much it matters to them and why they're so passionate about it, you can tell that they're going to be making a decision around that uh, they're making the decision on a basis that's going to make them sustainably happy, happy in the future. Now, there is one other, like if I was to play devil's advocate to the article that, that she wrote, the argument that she made rather than the article that she wrote, actually, it would be this, that, and this was something, this was something that a good friend and mentor um, told me is that oftentimes when people are unhappy or they get into good jobs but or they're well-paying jobs but they're not happy and they use money as a salve in order to make themselves feel better about their job but it's not actually fixing the root cause and if you get to the point where you recognize you're in this situation and you recognize this and you want to get out if you're spending as much as you're making you're kind of trapped you can't 
you're you have a mortgage, you have an expensive car, you're kind of stuck. Whereas if you live relatively frugally, if you live a little bit below your means, you can walk away from the job, you can perhaps go back to school or start again in something new where chances are again you're not going to get paid as much and uh, you have that um you have that option available to you and in a certain sense the money is buying you freedom. If you're spending it all on that doesn't matter then you've you've you you're doing the opposite you're letting the money trap you and the interesting thing is i might almost point point to you like in terms of starting up what you did with stratechery like you you don't start at a point of success you start at the bottom and you work your way up and if you if you have no savings or you're living a really extravagant lifestyle you're not actually able to do something like that well i think the key point you you kind of st- the key point that you're driving at is, is optionality. Mm. Like, I think if you're, if you're, if you're going, um, the key thing is to maintain optionality, uh, where, so like the worst thing you can do is, so people will tell you, Oh, if you're going to be certain, you like taking out a mortgage, it's in people's heads that buying a house is better than renting. Uh, I think that buying a house in your twenties is one of the stupidest things you can do because you're, it, it, it has such a high cost in optionality. Like now you have this anchor around your foot and yes, mate, you can theoretically sell it, but that's a big pain and with unknown costs and you're not sure you get back and, um, and like, Oh, renting, you're just throwing it away. Well, no, you're, what you're, what you're doing is, well, one with a mortgage, you're all the interest that you're paying up front and all the fees you're throwing away too. But, but two, like what price the freedom to mm. pursue that job somewhere else or to put it down and do something else. The, the other thing I would say though, I'm, I am very cognizant that this is a very privileged yeah. sort of attitude and, and, and position to take. Yes. And, and so I am sensitive to the, that's fine for Ben argument for this sort of thing specifically. Mm. And I did have a very good education. Mm. Um, I, I could always go home and live in my parents' basement had I needed to mm. um, like they're, they're, you know, I had all the advantages in life, um, but for, you know, some sort of like inheritance or, Money the bank, everything else though I had for sure, and uh, that certainly is something that, yeah, you know, and, and totally, and I, I think that's a really good reminder because I, I don't know, I'm I'm living in the bubble of <laughs> we're living in the bubble of 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 being you know yeah, totally well off, being born in wealth countries, well, and, and had lots of opportunities, right? right? And, yeah, totally. Yeah. Like we've been blessed with opportunities and it's it's absolutely worth being reminded of that. So thank you. I do want to clarify one thing though around optionality, which is I think optimizing for optionality financially makes, well, I mean, even from a career perspective, when you're young, optimizing for optionality probably makes sense. But I think this is another trap that people fall into as they get further into their career. They think like having lots of uh, options, I'm not going to speak to the financial, but on a career side always um, makes more and more sense. And the, the funny thing is, if you're not sure about what you want to do, having options makes sense. The problem is you, options don't make you happy. Um, exercising an option is what makes you happy. And um, I, again, this is just another trap that I've seen people fall into where it's like a good thing, like you go work at a consulting firm or something where you can go do pretty much anything afterwards. Or And, and that's fine to a point, but like continuing down that trajectory, you end up picking things based on where it can lead to other things as opposed to eventually getting to the point where you pick something because it's what you really, really want to do. And 
again, I think your point around financial optionality, particularly at a young age, makes lots of sense. And it, it might even make sense from a career perspective when you're young as well. But it's I, optionality all round and continuing to optimize for that, I think, is actually a mistake. Oh, I completely agree. I, I think the, the whole point of maintaining optionality when you're younger is so that when the right opportunity comes along, you can dive into it full scale, mm. right? The, the problem with locking yourself into something when you're young is that when the better or correct thing comes along, you're now split. So actually, optionality up front enables focus on the back end, mm. whereas limiting optionality in the front limits focus on the back end. Like they're, 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 they're two halves that are necessary uh, you can't have you can't have focus and direction in your life if you didn't start out with optionality, and and maybe that's a little counterintuitive, but I think in general this is again another challenge that people have a problem with, organizations have a problem with. Like in different contexts, you need different decision making, different in different ways of thinking about things. And just because yeah, we say something that makes sense for one stage of your life it doesn't necessarily make sense for another right now if i if i'm not building savings now like that's like because not only i've never have to make up for all my missed compound interest <laughs> your misspent youth well yeah but the point is like now i am very focused i know exactly what i'm doing with my wife um and this is the time to buckle down i have a mortgage um i, I like i have all the stuff that i just railed against but that's because i also know what i'm doing and where i'm where I'm going. You're reminding me of, um, there are various pieces of research in the business world that have come along that have been formative to the way I think. And listening to you talk about it is reminding me of one, which is Rita McGrath's work on the strategy formulation process. So to take this from a, from a personal lens back up to the organizational level, it's, it's people think that the strategy process, um, only works well when it's, to use the word that you pulled on earlier, very deliberate. But actually what makes sense really depends on the circumstances you're in. And if you've, mm. if you've found a strategy that's working well in an organization that's highly profitable or, or, or in your personal life that's, that's a, a solid source of income that can support your family, but more importantly, something that you really enjoy, then a deliberate strategy doubling down, narrowing the aperture makes total sense. But if you're not in those circumstances, then pursuing a strategy like that actually is counterproductive. And, and uh, the language that she uses to describe this is to be more emergent in nature, to be open to opportunities. From an organization perspective, you're like feeling things out. You're testing to find MVP. Or, and, and from a personal perspective, like you're trying lots of different things. You're going out there and having lots of different experiences and being open to things that you could never have expected to emerge. Um, it's just interesting how when this research is done well, like McGrath's research is, it's kind of um, nested in nature. It applies at the organizational level. But then when I hear you talk about your approach to thinking through options and exercising them, it applies equally well uh, at this level as well. No, totally. And this, I mean, this is something I had to learn personally. I think I've told this story. And by the way, we're dilly-dallying because I have, I have a confession to make. Um, oh, here we go. We'll get to it in a moment. Uh, but when I was in, when I, when I was in, I think I've told this on the podcast and if I'm, if I have, I'm sorry for repeating myself. Um, and if I haven't, I apologize for making an unnecessary apology. <laughs> um, but when I was in undergrad, I had five different majors. Um, oh, wow. I don't think you have told this story. Oh yeah. I started in mechanical engineer and then I switched to computer science 
And then I went to psychology and then behavioral science and law and then political science. You kind of see the gradient as I'm just getting farther and farther away from math. Um, <laughs> uh, further and further away from Excel, Ben. <laughs> well, Excel doesn't count. I don't know. Yeah, I'm joking. But um, the... And every time I switched majors, I would replan out every class I was going to take until I graduated. And this all happened on like a freshman or sophomore in in, in college. Um, and by the time I switched to the last, I'm like, this is stupid. What am I? Why am I wasting my time? I'm probably going to switch my major again. Uh, I'm just going to take classes with great prof- with like great professors. Uh. It doesn't matter what they are. And I, you probably know the moral of the story. The last few years were just a fantastic college experience. I took classes I never would have thought about um, that were usually these small seminars and a few people and and got so much more out of out of them than I, than these other classes that on paper looked like the classes I should take. Um, and just random topics that that even today I find myself um, go, coming back to and, and drawing on. There, there's one I, I remember is like the philosophy of education or something. It's like mm. the way the way philosophy has thought about education and how people were in over, you know, kind of over human history, mm. you know, from especially a lot of time on, on, on Plato, especially, but all the way then up through the enlightenment and all these sort of years. And uh, there, I, I can't even remember specifics of that class, but I just know that it had such a big impact on me and, and the way I think about stuff. And I never would have, I never ever would have put that in my plan. Awesome. That That's kind of like how that, that, that experience of just whatever, I'm just going to take classical professors. I point to as kind of one of the core organizing principles of, of my, of my life and how I think about things mm. is if you think about the future and if you always make plans for the future, the worst thing about having a super explicit five-year plan is that you'll achieve your plan perfectly. <laughs> and then you get there and you realize that the world has changed while well, you've been so focused on your plan that, yeah, you got to the destination you want to get to, but it's nowhere near the place you're supposed to be. Right. And, and there's so much about the world and everything that, that we don't control. Uh, basically everything. The yeah. only thing that I can control is me. And the only thing that I control about me is, is my actions and responses to whatever's happening right now. And so that means being being in the moment, not not. Yes, you can have a general direction for the future and and but not not living in the past, not 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 living in the future, being in the being in the present and then think about what is it about me that I can change? What can I make better about myself so that when the opportunity comes one, because I'm in the moment, I will recognize it. And two, I will have prepared myself as a person so to be ready to, to take that opportunity and. And I think this is what I did get out of my twenties was I, I I ended up there were different parts of my life where I actually thought, okay, I need to work on this. I, I need to this aspect of my life um uh I need to get get better at or and and I don't know, like and some of it was, was some of it was accidental, some of it was on purpose. Like mm-hmm. uh for me, the accidental and most difficult part was, you know, that six years of being in Taiwan. I wrote about this in actually in, in one of my in one of my essays for uh, for Kellogg. I got like I, I started in like a basketball game because of some academic accomplishment, and I hated it. I was so embarrassed. It, 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 and I hated it because I didn't deserve it. Like I sucked at basketball. <laughs> I was a bench warmer for a reason. Um, and it was just so embarrassing. And I'm like, oh, I've written all this stuff about how 
all this benefit I've gotten from living abroad and like to the way we just spent on this podcast saying, Oh, all the experiences I've gotten. And I'm like, but actually a big part of it was me running away, like running away from expectations, what people thought I should do that. I had this burden. I was raised a Christian. Like there's this, it was always told, Oh, God's giving you a gift. You better do something with it. It's like, that's, that's actually a lot of pressure mm. when you're 20 years old. Yeah. And so for me, the experience ended up being, I had to spend six years abroad, not to learn about the culture or all that sort of stuff. Although I got all those benefits and I got, you know, the, the best way to learn about your home culture is to leave it, you know, and, mm. and view it from the outside. That's probably mm. even more benefit than learning about Chinese culture or Taiwan or Asia. But for me, I had to like, I had to like come to grips with just who I was as a person and, and expectations and being okay, being okay with just teaching some kids their ABCs. And like, I don't need to change the world. Like I just need to do the best I can do what I love to do. Uh, or just not even that, just, just do the best I can. And it'll like the world's problems aren't my responsibility. It's a pretty, and, sorry, go ahead. No, I mean, it's ridiculous to say that I would even think that, but I had to let that go. And I had to be okay with not accomplishing anything. And it was only till then that one, I got this kind of clarity about being more deliberate in my actions and think about myself and what, what I could do. But two, like there's, there's no way. That's what I meant by I couldn't do what I do now without that. Mm. Um, like I like what I do. I like writing about tech. Um, I'm glad people find it valuable, but like it's it, like, I don't need it. And, and that was something that's what I got from my twenties when I didn't make any savings. That's awesome. I mean, like I, I, I can't think of a more valuable thing to learn than to learn that about yourself and to learn how to let go, to let go of all those expectations and all that pressure that that you put on yourself uh there's a there's a <laughs> there's this it's uh, there's this notion in aboriginal culture in australia called walkabout and it, it has to do with the the only way you can find yourself is to leave to go away somewhere else and and on that journey that's where you find yourself and the story you just told reminds me of that like if you'd stayed here if you'd if you'd done all the traditional things, that might not have happened. But in going into an entirely different environment and, and an environment where you could never have expected to learn those things about yourself, that's where it's, hap that's where it's happened. And, like, I mean, that's, that's the essence of, like, it, things being emergent. And it's also just awesome to hear that that's what you got out of that experience. Yeah. I mean, if I had, had I, I sometimes look back, like what if I had stayed with computer science or what if I'd gone to Stanford or, or Harvard, or whatever. I mean, like, I think I've talked about the podcast, you know, just the background I came from, those weren't even options, not because I wasn't capable because it didn't even occur to me or my family. I mean, like we were, just, you know, lower, lower middle class, just not even in our orbit. Mm. But ha had I done that, yeah, maybe I would have been some hotshot programmer in my 20s. Um, but I would have been a dick. Uh, I would have been 
constantly trying to prove and show off how smart I was, I would have been, I, I, w- I wouldn't have had there any of the, when you're pushing yourself so hard and pushing yourself in all senses of the word, pushing yourself to succeed, but also pushing yourself for people to notice you and yeah. to pay attention to you. Uh, you, you, there's, you're, you're compressed. You're, you're, you're not open to things. You're not, you're not able to, to take things in. You're not able to say when you're wrong. And it's, it's one of those things where we talk about risk, having upside and downside. The risk here is you're limiting your upside. Like you're, you're not, you're going to miss out on the essential ingredients and abilities that let you go further. And is there a risk? Yeah, there was a risk. I, I took a huge risk. I, I, didn't make any money. Um, I lived abroad. I, I risked not being able to get a good job. I mean, the, the, I think I've said the reason I went to business school is not because I had any affinity um, for business school per se. I've kind of shared their Silicon Valley mindset that MBAs are worthless. But it was that was that was the only way for me to get a job in in tech, right? But I was 29 years old. I had no relevant experience, um, and uh, fortunately, uh, you know, Kellogg took me in, and then um, and then. Apple, I mean, every single tech company turned me down either without an interview or after one interview um, my first year, every single one except for Apple, um, which uh, I think I mentioned, you know, we'll always, I will admit that's a bias because they'll have a soft spot, but I think it gets into something that, that I think Apple does value, or at least in this particular area was for them, I was actually an easy hire because I had such bizarre experiences, right? There, there mm-hmm. was like, I was coming from a place that no one else was coming from. Um, and obviously that opened doors, you know, to Microsoft and to, and to, and, and to other places and where I'm at now. Um, There's this notion in, in uh, that, that, that is the, it's almost like the opposite side of the coin to learning to let go, which is that this idea that you're exactly where you need to be like right now, you are exactly where you need to be. And if you can come to believe that, it stops you thinking forward and thinking back and it, it makes you much more aware of what's happening right now. Like you didn't go to Taiwan seeking those experiences, but I think part of the reason you had them is is you is because you didn't go there with those expectations. You didn't go there seeking them and that's what you found. And it again, like... Like you, like you and Birdie Man, the first time versus the second. Yeah, time. right. And and again, it's it's you mentioned the Jobs quote about it only making sense in retrospect, like connecting the dots. Uh, there's 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 an art to learning to trust. That's exactly what's happening. And the mentality that, that there's something subtle in what shifts in your mentality and how you approach life when you start to believe that you you are that much more present. You're that much more open to things that you otherwise just like your head's down and you, you walk straight past these incredible opportunities, these incredible experiences. Yeah. And, and this is something that, that why it gets so hard to operate the larger to pull way back out, uh, mm-hmm. the larger an organization gets is because there's to operate this way, to operate in an emergent behavior where you're sensitive to and able to take advantage of new opportunities requires a high level of trust, uh, whether it be trust in yourself, whether it be trust in the person that you're following who is who is there because you don't know where you're going. That's the entire point mm. because the moment you know where you're going, your focus narrows. Like you can't, you can't 
they're 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 exact opposites. It's either one or the other. And like we said, once you know where you're going, that's what you want. You want to focus. You want to narrow the distractions. You want to be on uh, on the way. But before that, you don't. And if you're if you're a team or a group or a large company, uh, if if you feel like the company doesn't know where it's going, uh, that's it. Just doesn't work, right? You leaders always feel compelled to be decisive and to and to not be emergent. Yeah, you know, they don't realize it, and that's how you miss opportunities and you miss what's coming beyond all the incentive stuff and and the organization stuff. It's that you're 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 blind, and you're blind because your your organization demands you be blind because you're not there. There isn't the interpersonal, implicit sort of trust that you can get in a small team operating alone. Right. It's interesting because the signals that you need to listen to change in different circumstances. Like there's this fantastic example. It's a case that I did at business school around Honda uh, arriving in America. And uh, they they said Hyundai or Honda? Honda, the like Japanese, the Japanese company. And they, they started off with bikes. Like most people know them now as a car company, but they started off in bikes and they were, quite successful in Japan and they decided that post-war they were going to try and take the U.S. And they looked around the U.S. market and um, everyone was riding these big bikes like Harleys or, or British touring bikes and Honda decided that it needed to introduce big bikes just like the American ones but they had no real experience doing this because most of the bikes in Japan were small bikes. They're little things to ride around narrow streets, um, people going small distances, not long distances. They introduced these bikes and not many people bought them because a lot of people were buying these bikes based on their brand reputation and you didn't want to be the guy pulling up on this Japanese bike, which <laughs> go back a few decades, they don't have the same reputation that they do now next to the guy on the Harley. But the few that they sold, they just didn't have experience doing it. They leaked oil. The company was hemorrhaging money. Anyway, in an attempt to save money, they ended up uh, shipping across a few of these little Japanese, the, 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 the bikes that people would ride around in Japan called the Super Cubs. And they, they'd use them inside the operations in LA for, for parcel and parts deliveries and whatever. And anyway, one day, one of the guys from the Honda team decided to take one of these things up into the hills of Los Angeles and take out the aggression of everything not working out on, on these dirt roads. And he had a really good time and he went back with another friend and this became a regular thing. And then a couple of people who were hiking around the trails asked about this these dirt bikes, these bikes that people were riding around on dirt trails on and asked if they could buy one. And he's like, no, 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 you know, these aren't really for sale. But the guy persisted and then he got one over and sold it. And then it, it slowly started to take off. And the deliberate strategy Honda had, like the executives inside Honda America, they saw these they saw these little bikes being sold and they're like, but this is going to ruin the big bike strategy. But they had no choice because it was the it, it turned out it started making money and they were losing money hand over foot, sending these big bikes back to Japan to get fixed. And then gradually more and more of these little bikes came in and then a sporting store wanted to carry them. And long story short, it ended up leading the dirt bike, like kicking off this, this, this whole category called dirt bikes that didn't exist anymore. Now, Honda came in with this very deliberate strategy and the emergent strategy was kind of forced on them by the fact, the, the financial reality of the situation. 
And and that's the thing organizations have going for them. This is the idea behind MVP, like find product market fit. The irony of it is that if that if you stay too focused on the financials as you become successful, then later on down the path, you leave yourself open to disruption because someone else comes in and from a financial perspective comes in underneath you. And from a, if you just focus on the financials, it, it makes no sense to go and attack them. You, you retreat up market from them. And it's this interesting tension between emergent and deliberate. You want to be emergent and then you want to be deliberate, but you also need to, to stay open to the possibility that someone else might come up from underneath you. And if you just focus on the, the, uh, the, the new deliberate strategy and you don't stay open to an emergent one later on, then it can come and get you if you ignore those financial signals. So, uh, there's well, there's another way to look at it at, at too, not just from a disruption standpoint, but um, uh, uh, I have to admit, um, I'm not willing to say completely that you're right because I don't think you were, uh, but that I was wrong, uh, about about the Apple Watch. I thought you're about to go after me for my Honda story. I was like, no, okay. no, it's, no, it's a great story, and the, and the um. And I love there's some, how often do organizations end up having the right strategy forced on them, right? <laughs> and you know ends up being totally transformative. Uh, but no, I, I've been thinking about the Apple Watch a lot. I was gonna I was gonna write about this week. Um, I ended up not. Um, I still might might next week. Um, but I think the fundamental mistake that Apple has made with the watch uh, is it's funny. Is actually the first thing I wrote with the watch. I think ended up being right was Apple was too deliberate with the watch and they needed to have more of an um, emergent strategy with it. And what I mean is um, watch, watch OS 2.0 came out this week and the sport with native apps were like, Oh, finally, this is the real watch. You know, it was like, I don't know. It was, and I'm like, what was the last one? It was a beta. Um, and the, the fact of the matter is that um, now that I've lived with the, the watch for, for four or five months, uh, I like it. I, I like it a lot, actually. And, and because I had to get it repaired, I had no choice but to be without it for a week. And I missed mm. it. Mm. And I was happy to have it back. And that's despite the fact I like, I think we mentioned in a previous podcast, I like wearing nice watches. And I, mm-hmm. I do miss that aspect. But I find the, uh, it, and it sounds stupid, but it's just notifications. I, I abhor now my phone buzzing in my pocket. I just hate it. And and just that having that tap on the wrist and knowing what's happening, mm-hmm. or just seeing the time, or seeing the temperature, or ideally, you know, seeing these different things, that's enough. Like that mm-hmm. really is enough, and it makes me want to wear it, and it makes me in the market, whatever. Um, the and so Watch OS 2.0 came out, and one of the big things with Watch OS 2.0 is uh, that now apps can have their own complications; they have their own displays on on the home screen Mm. so i was looking for uh i heard about there was this weather app that 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 was good uh and so i went to the weather app was like carrot weather or something um and so someone was mentioning on twitter so i went to this i went to the store and i looked at carrot carrot weather and it's four dollars so you know as you know four dollars is an outrageous price for an app and who would ever pay that and so i'm dilly dallying as people do i don't want to buy it and i went there and there was no picture of the complication the the only pictures in the app store were of the watch face of the of the watch watch as an app and of the like the the accompanying iPhone app and it was so striking to me because now that I've had the watch and worn it every day 
mm-hmm. for five to six months. The only thing I care about is the complication, what I see on my wrist or the notification. Yeah. Like I'm never going to freaking open the app and go yep. to it on purpose. And, but that's something that I, I learned and I've come to understand uh, by, by actually using it all, all mm. the time and, and wearing it. And if I were in charge of apps and if, if apps were only just now coming out, I don't know if I'd even have an app screen at all. All I would have are an app can be a complication or, and maybe from a complication, watch into it or, or I would also double down and triple down and quadruple down on, on custom watch faces. Yeah. Like I should be able to have, this should be the screen for my life where it's exactly what I want. Mm. And, and, and Apple is like, there should be 10 gazillion more watch faces than there are watch bands. Yet Apple's spending all their time making all these watch bands and barely increasing the number of watch faces and no additional usable watch faces in, in OS two. And actually less, if you consider the atrociousness that is the utility now. Um, but my point though, and I love how this comes out of this, this behavior is Apple set the paradigm for the watch from day one. Yep. Like it's going to have apps. The apps are going to look like this. This is how you're going to interact with them, blah, 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 blah. And they were in my estimation too deliberate. Like the, the idea of a watch is a good one. I've said that from the beginning. We've both said that from a good thing. Mm -hmm. You can see why this is where technology is going. It's where Apple should invest. But just because you're going that way doesn't mean you know everything about how it's going to happen. And so that's why you put out the MVP, you put out the minimum viable product, and then you figure out, where to go. And that's exactly what Apple did not do with the watch. They, they, they put too much into it at the beginning. And now I believe it's going in the wrong direction. I totally agree. I, there, there are a few, there are a few thoughts that come to mind, but the first is I'm kicking myself for interrupting you earlier. Cause I, <laughs> I thought you were complaining about my Honda story as opposed to Reaching back to that uh, magnificent argument that was episode eighteen or whatever, but the 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 funny thing for me is well, the, the part where I think you were wrong is I think you you your position was they shouldn't have even made it at all. Oh no, I've never said that. I thought they let it out of the bag too early, but yes. yeah, yeah, no, that, that that too, which is fine. Well, the funny thing is though, and that's why I think you're wrong. I think the tethering to the to the phone is totally fine actually, because yeah, the reality I, is, is is the whole point is you're never. And and I overestimated it, and probably I don't, for whatever reason, maybe because I was locked, I wanted to win against you. Um, you're just not going to interact with your watch really barely, barely at all. And so uh, you're going to have anything you want to do, you're going to do with your phone. Yeah. And and so they actually they should have doubled, tripled, quadrupled down on the fact the phone is with you. Mm. Um, I, I agree. I, so I agree with this. There are still moments where I wish I could just take the watch and not have the phone. But for sure, uh, for sure. But, but the, the the point about focusing on the paradigm is exactly right. And the thing about it is that if they had just focused on the paradigm and building the paradigm in the way that you just described, it it. it if all you've done is notifications and complications, then at some point further down the line, you add in cell signal and people's paradigm uh, for how to use the watch is still the same. But it's funny you mention this now. I I, I I got one as well. I wanted to play with it. And 
I, I like it probably less than you, but in the way you're describing using it, that mirrors exactly my use case as well. And I was actually, when watchOS 2 came along, I actually started to feel guilty. It's like, I wonder if the reason I'm not using all these apps is because I never went to the trouble of setting it all up. Like it just installs hundreds of apps on the phone screen and I never really go there. And I wonder if I invest like an hour to clean it all up, then maybe I'll use it more. So I did. And I still don't go anywhere near that app screen. A, like I don't know what half these apps do. Like there are three orange orange buttons on the phone screen that all look like clocks. It's like, it's silly, but the notifications and the notifications and the the main watch screen where I have the similar things. I have the time in, in Australia and the time in China where my sister is and then the temperature. And like that's where I spend 99% of my time. And occasionally- and it's, it's useful. It is. It totally is. I'll get my heart rate or I'll swipe through. What's it called when you swipe up like the the heart rate monitor? Glances. Glances. I'll use the glances occasionally. They shouldn't have. They've anchored way too heavily on the apps. And it's it almost feels Microsoftian in, in the way that when Microsoft tried making the phone, that they tried dropping Windows as was that there was too much of the Windows paradigm dropped onto the phone. And I feel Apple's kind of been a victim of their own success here as well in that they've dropped too much of the the iPhone paradigm into the watch where yeah. they they could have, they I, yeah, they, they should have blank slated it. And just the, the glances, the complications and the watch face and the notifications would have been more than enough. No, that, that's, that's exactly it. I, at the introduction, I went back and watched it this week actually. Um, Tim Cook says that, oh, with a new thing, you can't just do what you did on the old thing. And he like talks about like multi-touch and stuff. But but that that's a that's at a surface level. Yes, of course you can have the exact same interaction, but the fundamental paradigm of of the device also needs to be rethought. And and the watch wasn't. It was this kind of this assumption uh that oh just the, the, the wait, after just wait till developers come and then the mm. watch will become useful and people mm. have been saying this again and again and mm-hmm. i think that that is iphone thinking mm-hmm. the assumption that developers will make the watch useful is iphone thinking and yes maybe an application will come along, come along and prove me wrong but i don't think so i i think the fundamental way that the watch needed to be rethought was not how you interact with it per se it was understanding at a fundamental level um, what is the core thing this does for me that nothing else in my life can do Yep. for the watch, the core, the most important part of the watch, just like for computers, it was the mouse and for the phone, it was multi-touch, or whatever for the watch. It is, well, here's a, here's a question before I get to it, before I give yeah. it away, what was the, in the presentation cook focused on how you interact with it. And so he talked about the, he talked about the mouse for the computer, he talked about the quick wheel for the iPad iPod. He mm. talked about touch for the phone. I think he got the iPod wrong. The The iPod was not the core thing in the iPod that made the iPod what it was, was not the quick wheel. It was the 1.8 inch hard drive. Like that was the fundamental innovation that made the iPod possible and made mm. the very concept something that was compelling of taking a thousand songs in your pocket. Similarly with the watch, it's not the digital crown, which no one uses anyway. Yes. It's, the fundamental innovation in the watch is the taptic engine. And it's that ability to just tap your wrist. No one knows you can ignore it. If you want, you can do it. If you want, like it's not this crazy thing going off in your pocket and you have to fish in and fish out. You just lift your, lift your wrist and take a look. And that, and that 
and that goes hand in hand with just notifying you like someone just and wedding you why do you make a decision on whether you want to be interrupted? Are you interrupted by looking at your wrist? Yes, to a degree, but it's a completely different level of interruption compared to pulling the phone out of your pocket. Totally. And if you and I know this sounds trivial if you haven't worn a watch, but it's it's I can't overestimate what a difference that tap on the wrist is versus the buzzing in your pocket and having to fish it out. Yeah, and, and and if you if you do if there is something there that's that warrants responding, then, then you pull just get the your phone, phone out. out. Right. Yeah, exactly. You haven't wasted that much movement, right? Like it's, it. you just, you've wasted a glance and, and once you understand that, then your entire thinking about the watch and what it should be changes. You ship a watch that has the Taptic engine has notifications and, and a watch. It's, it's a watch that does more. You can look at just a, mm, little, a little bit more. Exactly. And then when watch OS 2.0 comes around, well, then now. <laughs> or whatever, then instead of doubling down on trying to fix all this stuff you shipped in version one that you shouldn't like terribly performant apps, they actually, the issue with apps isn't that they don't perform. It's that they're, they're too, they yeah, don't have a point. And yeah, yeah sorry. And no, so no, 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 2.0, I think right. they would have gone in a totally different direction. I suspect if you start, if the original watch was nothing but Apple watch faces and notifications, one, I would get a, the exact same amount of value I get out of today because that's all I use. And two, I suspect development would have gone in a different direction. Again, more towards custom watch faces, more towards custom complications. And that would have been the only way probably third parties would have been exposed on the device. Mm. And the problem now is, one, it's hard to change direction because once you choose a direction, your eyes narrow, you're focused. And so they're on this app road. So one, who knows if they even see the problem. And two... If and when you do go back, you have to retrace your you have to retrace your steps and go back to zero and then go in a new direction and undo stuff. And there's a bunch of crap to undo. Like and that it's hard. It, and it's messy and expensive and you're gonna piss developers off. Yeah. And all this sort of stuff. Point. Yeah. And I, I just and the, why what what happened? What what happened be, remember the iPhone? It was so important the iPhone did not ship with apps in the App Store because no one had a, a conception of apps in the App Store in 2007. It, when when apps shipped in 2008, it was so obvious that's what they should be. Mm. But they became obvious because Apple first shipped a minimum viable product. Mm-hmm. And then the need revealed itself. It revealed itself so obviously and painfully and clearly that people were going nuts within a few months. Where Like, we want to put out apps. And, and had Apple done the same thing with the watch – ship the minimum vile product, the pain would have revealed the direction it should evolve. But no, they pre-chose, they were too deliberate, they were too focused instead of being this. And and now I think the product is is fundamentally flawed for that reason. It's interesting you use the word too or the term too focused. I, I mean in in a certain sense they were, but in a, in an in another sense they, they, I, they weren't. Yeah, they weren't yeah. focused on what on what the core functionality was. Exactly. And if we reach back to, I can't remember what episode it was, but one of the really early ones where we talked about where we talked about the concerns for Apple, it was exactly this: that the the focus, the ability to strip out everything except for the core essential and build up from that. Whether that was the magic that might have been lost more recently inside the organization. And uh, having that argument about the watch at the time 
and 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 listening to the reflections of both of us having used it now for however many months it's been out it's it's confirmatory for me a little bit that that maybe part of this magic that makes this company so special its ability to take out everything everything that's extraneous and just leave the very core of what matters most in its products Maybe some of that magic is starting to be lost. Yeah, I mean, a response that uh, you'll you'll make this point that Apple uh, Apple's magic comes from its ability to focus and deliver just the most ma- narrow product, and then evolve from there. Uh-huh. And people will respond, "Oh, well, yeah, but they're a big company now; like they they can walk and chew gum at the same time, or something to to that effect." And that that's to miss the point. Mm. You don't focus and do a minimum vial product to save money or to save resources. You do it because to to presume that you can see that far down the mm-hmm. road is to make that five-year plan that yeah. I talked about at the beginning. Exactly. And Apple is well on their way to achieving their plan with the watch and it's ending up in the wrong place. I completely agree with this. And on one hand, you ask the question, do they do they know? And I hope to some extent that they're getting some kind of analytics around usage on the watch that reveals that people just really aren't pressing those two buttons on the side of the phone. And if you believe that to be true, I think the next big test is whether they have the courage to do the right thing about it because they've, they've effectively, the interface for the watch that makes sense has nothing to do with what happens when you press that digital crown and the apps come up. The interface is all around, it, it's housed on the display of the watch and then the the complications and the glances if there are other things that don't fit on the complications. Like that's the interface that made sense. And no, the, I, well, the interface that makes sense is the tap. Like right. everything that, what happens after the tap? Like, cause that's the, that's, that drives mm most of your interaction with your watch. There's two ways, like what are the two ways, two reasons you look at your watch? Number one is you want information. Mm -hmm. And so there should be focus around giving people exactly the information that they want to see. Uh, And that's the watch faces and complications. And two is notifications where the watch taps you and gets Mm -hmm. your attention. That that's what drives interaction and all development about the UI and all sort of stuff should come from that. Mm-hmm. The problem with the whole app paradigm is that's you initiating some sort of activity with your watch, which just doesn't make sense. No, that doesn't mean in the future it, it won't. I mean, for the iPod, the iPod, certainly there's a trail from the iPod to the iPhone. But notice that there, there was a step change where now it became a primary interaction device as opposed to just like a, you know, a portable hard drive for all intents and purposes. And maybe at some point there, it would be appropriate to have a step change from a very passive device on your wrist, something that's more active. Mm. I don't know. But but the whole point is, I don't know. Tim Cook doesn't know. Johnny Ive doesn't know. And they don't know. And if you and think they, they know. they to know, right? They shouldn't presume to know. And and I don't say that no, Tim Cook or Johnny Ive or Alan Dye or whoever doesn't know to be cocky. It's that this is the whole point is that no one knows these things. And this is like, and so you can get the broad sense that a watch makes sense. I think it does make sense. And like I said, despite all these flaws, I still wear it every day and I like it. And I would, I'm going to buy the next one when it comes out. And 
And because it's it's a, it's an important like I miss it when it's gone. But that's because it's the right like I think this is the right direction. But that doesn't mean you have to know every single path from here to there. And actually, this is where saying no comes in. It's not saying no just so you can do what you do really well. It's saying no because you can maintain the optionality to do what you need to do in the future instead of locking yourself in and then ending up exactly where you wanted to be and missing the point. They've they've like they're in their twenties and they've got themselves a mortgage. Yes. That's exactly it because they couldn't say no. Like the what the, there's just too much there there is too many decisions made where yep. you couldn't know enough to make the right decision. I agree. All right, we went super long today. Um, we did, but it was fun, and Lord knows we covered everything. <laughs> yeah, uh, to say the least. Uh, so yeah, so um, it, what's funny is I if I go, this is a lesson for me. If I go back and I read my watch pieces at the time. My first watch piece was spot on. I basically said exactly this. I'm like, they're overdoing it. I'm like, I'm concerned they're worried about justifying this watch, justifying why it costs, you know, thousands mm-hmm. of dollars or a few hundred dollars, wherever it might be. And I'm like, they're overthinking it they're, and they're, they're mm-hmm. limiting where they're going to go. And then I stupidly backed off of it. It's a, I, I have a big grin on my face. You, 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 uh, you should have you should have felt what it was like when you made so much sense the first time around, and then the next week I picked up the phone to you and you'd done a one eighty, and I I like I was like Ben, what are you doing? You were right the first time around. Yeah, well, it's yeah, it's a it's a good it's a good it's something for me to reflect on um, and think about. I think there's one other thing that I want to say about this, which is. I mean, we've talked previously about how you publish every day and how that's something that's um, something that's I like it would drive me crazy trying to write an article every day, but um, the, there's a, it's, it's easy to go back and point the finger when you got things wrong. But I, I think the extent to which you put things out there and you have put thoughtful, well-reasoned pieces, uh, like the extent to which you put these things out there and you explain your thinking and your rationale why, and then the extent to which you hold yourself accountable on the, odd occasion i wouldn't say it happens often but on the odd occasion where things turn out differently is to be commended um i wish more people were like that yeah i think that's the only way that makes i mean i appreciate the commendation but truthfully that's the only thing that makes what i do possible i think is if i were dogmatic and defended to the death everything that i did one reality i'm gonna be wrong sometimes and all that's going to do is ruin my credibility. Like your, your credibility, sure, it's going to take a hit if you have to make a correction or say that you were wrong. But it's going to be it's going to be far worse if you are wrong and you refuse to admit it, and everyone can see that you're wrong. Um, mm-hmm. That's one. Um, and and you know, all at the end of the day, all I'm selling is is my credibility. Uh, but then two, yeah, I mean, to have a product that people pay for, I think having a daily aspect is important. But that also increases the risk. There's more mm. surface area to make mistakes and there's less time to sit and dwell and reflect on something. It's, you know, um, like, like I said, I think the reason I'm able to do what I do is because I basically spent 15, 20 years thinking about this stuff beforehand. So I got mm. most of my dwelling, <laughs> dwelling time done. And now, <laughs> now I'm more executing on it, but for sure, like the times where I, where I struggle or the, where I think my stuff is as good as it could be, um, you know, for everyone else, it's perfect every day. You should subscribe. Uh, mm-hmm. But obviously not everything is perfect. I wish ones aren't. And it usually comes from the times where for family stuff or whatever, I'm busy or harried and I'm not, and I'm spending too much time writing and not enough time reflecting and reading mm-hmm. and thinking. And it's something that I have to be super 
cognizant and careful of careful of for me. And and it's you know the more the more people that read or subscribe, the more emails I get, the more requests for my time and attention, and it, it works against that. And it's something that I need to be super Rest aware of. Success. Of. Yeah, and it's yeah, it it's nice problem to have. It's a nice problem to have, and but it's also it's it's a very it's a very real thing. Real um, problem. Yeah, totally. So, on that uplifting note. All right. Well, uh, we went a little long, so uh, but that's a, apologies. I think, despite you said we were all over the place, but I think there was there was a bit. Oh of a, no, a no, no! Threat. I didn't mean it. Yeah, totally. I didn't mean it in a bad way. It was. It was. Um, sometimes when you follow the the white rabbit down the hole, it takes you to interesting places. And, what, I, and the way I would say, James, is it's only when you look back that you can connect the dots. Yeah, look at that. That's it's it's like a segue into our wrap up. Beautiful. <laughs> All right, sounds good. I will talk to you soon. Sounds good, mate. And our thanks to Zendesk for sponsoring, and we'll talk to you later. Absolutely. Bye. Zendesk makes software for better customer service. Its platform is designed to bring organizations and their customers closer together and is used by more than 60,000 organizations in 150 countries. Customer relationships are built on trust and communication. That requires making customer service a core part of product experiences, not an afterthought. Make your customer service seem like magic by building it directly into your apps, websites, and products with Zendesk Embeddables. Find out more by visiting zendesk.com forward slash embeddables.